Just the look of the call makes you so giddy to be an American duck hunter. Bring the beat back. Chad Belling back at you. Chad's an OG, but his call calling game ain't got nothing on me. Get him, boys. That's a duck. Hey, in this room, it's so hot in here, maybe I'll start to believe it myself. Welcome to the foul life. We merely exist in a duck's world. We train, breathe, and live by the migration. All of that goes into this crazy life of a duck hunter. We're steadfast, unwavering, the last of a breed. It is our right to hunt. I still believe it's a privilege, too. We are the foul life with Chad Velding. Proudly brought to you by Benelli, Bandit, Yukonuba, and Traeger. It's so foul, like birds and stuff. It's the Foul Eye Podcast. What's up, everybody? Chad Belding, your host. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode. We're fired up. We got Terry Demon on today. The Mojo, the spinning wheel. I don't know if there's another product that has ever been developed in all of waterfowl hunting that has created more memories more power, more adrenaline-filled moments for duck hunters. I mean, to be underneath blue sky, sun shining, cold temps in a cornfield and have three or four mojos going, a bunch of guys calling, girls calling. I don't know if you could reproduce it. The way they finish, the way it attracts them from long distances. If you turn them off, they leave. Now, that's not the case in every scenario. You got to know how to hunt with a mojo. You got to know when to use your remote. You got to know when to have it going. You got to know when to put maybe some pantyhose over the wings so the contrast is not that sharp. Maybe put it under an overhang or a branch or maybe change the elevation or the depth perception that you have them at so one's lower to the ground, one's higher to the ground. There's so many things you can do to utilize and create the effectiveness of what a mojo was built to do. And since 1999, when Terry started Mojo and brought this, you can't call it anything but magic. It's what the spinning wing did. And now their product line is so vast. And I can think about so many hunts with Terry, whether we were hunting pigeons, green wing till down in El Campo, Texas with the great Steve Biggers. We've been on so many memorable hunts and that mojo, that spinning wing has been a part of every single one of them. So to have Terry back on the show, he's one of my mentors. He's one of my best friends in the industry we've been together 15 years using the mojo product and that's not since the very first day but pretty close to it just a few years after he started mojo and now here we are in 2023 and terry demon is still coming on the podcast educating our listeners this guy is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to decoying birds ducks geese pigeons doves turkeys you name it his product line is even more vast than that so terry thank you for being here i know y'all are going to enjoy this but before we do we got to pay some bills we got some awesome sponsors please listen to this remember to support the partners and sponsor that support our tv shows our podcasts they believe in conservation they believe in what it takes to make sure that this culture and lifestyle is there for generations to come and that's why we promote the partners and sponsors that we do we're going to pay some bills here's a quick few messages from our sponsors and then we're going to be right back with Mojo Magic himself, the great, the one and only Terry Demon. The Fowl Life. How many birds in this area moved out? Can't kill them on the couch. How many new birds took their place? The Benelli's were barking, don't get me wrong. You're listening to The Fowl Life. Chad Belding! Live it. Being in the backyard at camp 
Being with friends and family, one thing that the pandemic did is it got us back in our backyards. It got us staying home more. And man, we just started doing so many cookouts, so much grilling. And we've been partnered with Traeger Grills for the last decade. And I don't know if you can be more innovative than what this brand has done from the new Timberline XL and the new Flat Rock, the Ironwood 885, all of their pellets, their rubs, their sauces, their glazes, their smash burger kit, you name it. Traeger Grills is awesome. And we use them a ton. I'm sure you've seen it on the Foul Life. You've seen it in our social media. Get creative. Be innovative. Think outside of the box. Wild game, domestic, vegetables, desserts, pizzas. You can do it all on a Traeger grill. And like I mentioned, that Timberline XL with that conduction plate, I'm talking high heat, reverse sear steaks. Anything you want to put on there gets it done in a hurry after you put a little smoke on them on the grill. Transfers right over. So easy. Everything is simplified. You can download the Traeger grills app you can find recipes you can work with pros like matt Pittman at meat church and chad ward at whiskey bent barbecue and so many others from across the country to master these recipes it's simple and that's what traeger is all about they did not want your backyard experience to be complex so when you're thinking of fun and good food and flavor recipes thinking outside the box think no further than traeger grills i can't wait to get back in my traeger grill just cook up something delicious thank you all very much When it comes to setting up the perfect spread, there's one crucial element, motion. Ducks have sharp eyes, and static decoys won't fool them for long. That's where motion decoys step in, bringing your spread to life and creating an irresistible scene. So why are motion decoys so important? Ducks are social creatures, and they seek cues that signal safety for landing. By adding motion to your spread, you're telling passing flocks that it's all clear and inviting them to join the party. Mojo's spinning wing decoys emulate the flash of duck wings from afar to draw them in and finish them like magic. Mojo's decoys are specifically designed to catch ducks' attention, and Mojo's motion decoys shine on those calmer low wind days when natural water movement is lacking. So if you're serious about bringing ducks to your blind, embrace the power of motion decoys with Mojo and head for MojoOutdoors.com today. Don't be call shy. We're coming back at you with another episode of The Foul Life with Chad Felding, and we've got the Lord of Ducks, Coyote Crusher, and President and CEO of Mojo Outdoors on the line, Mr. Terry Denman. I don't think anything makes my heart beat anymore than calling those coyotes up as close as we call and shooting them with a shotgun. Now, I didn't, we didn't always do it that way. We used to do it with a rifle. Once you started calling them right up in your mouth, that's a special challenge and it's just a special feeling. We're cupped up and ready for action and today's podcast is brought to you in part by Mojo Outdoors, American Almond Beef, Secure It Firearm Storage, and Camo Space. Now, let's Join Chad and Terry Denman as they're working the decoys. Are you in Louisiana? I am. You still love it there? I hate it. You hate it? It's been running from 104 to 109. Still that hot, huh? It has been. It's brutal. I mean, this is hot country. I'm used to being hot. But when you walk outside, it feels like somebody put a microwave reflector around your face. That's getting out of hand, you know? Is Teal open there, or is it open this week? No, Teal in Louisiana doesn't open till weekend after this weekend. Texas open, and I'm going uh, Friday down to Biggers. However, Biggers doesn't have very much water. Really? Massive drought down. There's massive drought here, too, but it sounds like he's worse than we are because we had excessive rain up until, I think, maybe early July. 
they quit raining and never rained again. Dang, that place down there has usually has a, well, when we were there, it had a bunch of water, not as much as it usually did, but they're worse off now that I hate hearing that. Well, they have a couple of different things going on down there. The, the drought causes the LCRA, the Lower Colorado River Authority, to not be able to furnish them their normal irrigation water. And so they short on the irrigation water from that source. And uh, I guess really probably the only water they got is what they pump. Now, they do pump a lot in those ponds, but they don't pump into all of them. So it's just kind of a bad deal. Last year, I think the number was somewhere around 4,100 or something blue wings he harvested just in the short blueing season. And then his big duck season was incredible too. I mean, they got it going on down there in El Campo. Well, they do. And you, you notice when you hunt with them, they don't do anything that's even close to being illegal. I mean, they're real sticklers about staying completely within the law. And he'll kill eight or 900 teal on opening day. God, but it, it already opened or it opens this week when you go? No, it opens Saturday. This coming Saturday, day after tomorrow. Oh. Well, that's three days from now. Do I need to go look in my mailbox? Is the invite in there, you think? I haven't looked in there in a while. You're not going to find in the mailbox because you have a standing invitation. You want to go hunt? <laughs> send a text. Send an email. Send a home and pigeon care. I don't care. Just let us know you want to come, and we'll take care of it. Yeah, that place is special. It is. It is. The only thing wrong with blue wing teal hunting is it only lasts a couple hours in the morning unless you got something. If you're out of town, you know, out of the office, unless you got something else to do, it's kind of a downtime. And a lot of people love that. I hate it. You wouldn't even want to shoot sporting clays after. You'd want to go after a mule deer, then call a coyote, a turkey if they're around. <laughs> I mean, you you got to stay active. You still love hunting like crazy, Terry? Yeah. Now, you don't have as much energy, you know, as time goes on. But I got about all I can stand. These uh, young cameramen don't always like going off of me because I make them go too hard. So as long as I keep doing that, I'll keep hunting. Do you see yourself getting on a plane to go like 17, 18 hours anymore, like Africa? Do you, are you still going to do that stuff at this point in your hunting career? Yeah, I'm going to go to Dallas Safari Club in January and see about lining up an African hunt for the summer of 24. And I would have went this year, and I would have also went to Argentina this year, except all those outfitters are was overloaded trying to purge out the, the backlog they had from a couple of years when people couldn't go there. So they should have that purged out by now, so it would be back to more like normal hunting. The influx, of, I've heard of it down in Argentina, even with the fishing guides. They're like – they're so backed up now with people trying to make up dates that were canceled on that it's hard to get a new date in there. So hopefully it comes back. What are your plans for like right now, as far as going into the season, are you going to do the usual Terry Demon season where you concentrate on ducks mainly? And then are you still infatuated with killing a mule deer every year? Are you going to call as many coyotes as you can during the fall? Are you still into all of it? Yeah, that's correct. Now, you know, given the nature of our business here at Mojo, uh, we have to have a lot of uh, mallard footage, of, of duck footage. It don't have to be mallard footage. Have a lot of duck footage. And so it kind of takes most of my time starting in October, not counting the early blue wing tail season, but other than that, starting in October and uh, going through the end of January. But I wish I could call more coyotes during that time thing, but I'm, and I do call some. But for the most part, I'm forced to take that up after the end of uh, the waterfowl seasons, which is the end of January for this part of the country. 
Uh, and then that leads me to the month of February to hunt called the coyotes, but they get very, very hard to call by the end of February because, you know, the breeding and the nut cycle. And so uh, I just need two of me. <laughs> little clone. What is the absolute highest that Terry Denman can get? What gets you off the most? And has it always been this way when you answer this question? Or is it kind of, does it, is it cyclical to where it transitions in and out? But is it a coyote finishing to eight feet for shotgun range, eight yards, I should say? Is it walking up on an elephant or hunting a lion, calling a grizzly bear, mallard ducks over the spinning wing decoy that Mojo's created for so many hunters, Canada geese back flapping in your decoys, a mule deer in the rimrock country of, of West Texas or out Western United States? What gets you off the most, Terry, at this point in your career? And has it always been that same answer? Yeah, I've had the same answer forever. And you got to throw quail, squirrels, and rabbits in there. And then I'll say, it don't matter any of that, you know. So, of course, you know, if you go on an exotic hunt, you get to go to Africa and hunt elephants. That's special. You can't do that, you know, probably once or twice in your lifetime. The same way with, uh, well, same way with all big game type hunting, you know. You get to go to, uh, I've been to Alaska, British Columbia, Yukon, you know, those got places hunted wild sheep, caribou, grizzly bears, a moose. And, you know, you can't do that very often. Or I can't. You know, I don't have the funds or the time to do that often. So that's a special hunt. But just as far as enjoying hunting, it's just as long as I get to go hunting, I'm, I'm cool with it. So all of that does, uh, it doesn't matter what you're chasing. You just like to be hunting. Getting an invite to go mallard hunting in Arkansas or going up to your friends and seeing Rob and the guys in Alberta, that doesn't get you more so fired up than just going on a coyote hunt in Kansas? It, it does. It does. But, you know, you're talking about a special hunt. And it's like anything else that you want to do that you can only do once or twice in your life. It's going to give you a different feeling, you know, a different level of excitement going into it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you like that type of hunting more. It's that you, you always wanted to go to the Yukon and go wild uh, uh, doll sheep hunting. Okay, so that's your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. Where I can go to Kansas or, or Texas or even Mexico and other states and go county hunting often. I don't think anything makes my heart beat any more than calling those coyotes up as close as we call them. You've seen that. And shooting them with a shotgun. Now, I didn't, we didn't always do it that way. We used to do it with a rifle. But, uh, you know, when we brought out that little critter decoy, one thing we all found out, that's being a lot of other guys I talked to, is you can't always stop the coyote out there. <laughs> Once it starts in, he's, he's pretty much coming in. So I couldn't hit him with a rifle anymore. That's what made me go, go to a shotgun. And so once you started calling them right up in your lap, that's a special challenge, and it's just a special feeling uh, associated with a special challenge. But it's a thrill. I don't know that anything thrills me any more than that that I do today. I couldn't agree more. There is something about a charging. A duck's not really coming in to eat you. <laughs> Neither is a goose. An elephant could kill you. A coyote's coming to literally eat you. You know, like he's coming to to eat and to kill and there's something about that predatorial instinct that when we're the top of the food chain and you're trying to trick something that is that savvy that has to eat that much raw meat a day to survive depending on what time of year it is they say the number one predator in the world as far as success rate on kills go is the african wild dog i don't know if that's because they're not hunted by as many humans as coyotes are here the success rate of a coyote is still in the top 10 
But to have to go out and hunt and kill that much raw food, unless they're on a carcass, I mean, that's a lot of rabbits to find and to chase down and to kill. And they, they got it. They're just an amazing, adaptable animal. And when you can trick one, man, it's a freaking. And I love tricking them in different ways like you do. You know, the distress is cool. But there's something about that vocalization and and getting into their language and their jargon, if you will, to communicate with them that's really neat also. Like people that haven't experienced coyote hunting with a shotgun up close. Um, some of the best I've ever done shotgun wise is in, in Sonora, Mexico. They're amazing to hunt down there if you can get down there. But yeah, I don't think I could disagree. There's something about bobcats aren't even as exciting. They're cool and they're mysterious and they just show up, you know, kind of like a cougar most of the time. If, if you've called in a cougar, which I know you have, and they're kind of slow going and they're not as aggressive, you know, if they're not jumping on the back of their prey. But as they approach that call, it seems like they're a little bit more cautious is that the right word it's like a bobcat and a, and a cougar more cautious than a coyote uh absolutely they are and uh you know cats in general are just uh not fast reactors they're not knee jerkers a coyote uh is a what i'd call a knee jerky jerker because you can call a coyote off of a 900 pound dead cow to come over there and check out that rabbit and that's a knee jerk you know, they don't stop and think, well, I got 900 pounds of meat here. What do I need that 14 ounce rabbit for? But he'll get off of it and come. And I think that's because his mother told him, his mom told him when he was growing up, don't ever pass up an easy meal in your life, son, because easy meals are hard to come by. And so I think they just knee jerk at it. But, but any kind of cat you want to call that I've been around, you know, when they come in, you can see that they're thinking, they're looking and they're thinking. And uh, if cows were thinking, as they are capable of doing, uh, they wouldn't run up there to that uh, call at 30 yards and uh, let us shoot them with a shotgun. So that's that's exciting. But, you know, your original question was, it's not as beautiful as a bunch of mallards floating in a decoy. I mean, when they lock up and fold in, you know, that's what you see when you sleep at night. You do, you do that all day and at night, you'll see that, you know. I don't usually see uh, coyote is coming in when I'm sleeping, but it excites me when it happens. Let me ask you this, Terry Demon, president, founder, CEO, Mojo Outdoors. You weren't the only founder, Mojo. We've had the story told many times on the podcast. You had partners, um, but your engineering background, based along the same line of questioning I've been hitting you with here the last few minutes, do you get off as much on designing that product? and blueprinting it and drawing it and conceiving it? Do you get off on it more of having it in the field and seeing it perform? What is the major part of your business psyche, Terry Demon? of is the innovation or the performance? I mean, obviously both of them are key and both of them are important, but what gets you fired up more when you come up with an idea or you see it actually into fruition and it's performing out in the field? Well, to me, Chad, you got to go buy those two. You know, I'm kind of an idea man. I guess I come up with a lot of them. A lot of them are bad, I might add, but <laughs> I still come up with a lot of them. And so you come up with an idea. And, uh, you know, one thing that we do here at Mojo, one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing I've always done is that, you know, we don't want to make products that don't work, even if they'll sell. We don't want to make those products. We want them to sell. And to sell, you know, they're going to have to be effective. They're going to have to work. And so you come up with an idea and it's a, you know, it's very exciting, even though it is a long range uh, activity, uh, you know, to get it developed. And so I like that because, you know, as you know, I have a uh, engineering background, but uh, as I think you probably know, 
I sold my engineering company about two years ago and, and came out to Mojo. And uh, now I spend almost all my time that's not consumed in either hunting or running a business, just uh, working on new products or working on increasing the quality of, of all. So I really can't se separate those two examples you made. It's that. But when you go, when you work on one that long, and then you go to the field and you see it work, that's extremely satisfying. So that part's more satisfying than the development of it is because that's what tells you uh, whether it worked or not, whether you should have been developing it or not. But to work on it, I find that fascinating and probably because I've been designing things my whole adult life. You know, I talk to many country music singers, songwriters, and they'll like get an idea and they, you know, the iPhones made it different. It used to be a pencil and a pad or a pen. Are you an idea guy to where you'll be laying in bed and something will pop into that busy, crazy brain of Terry Demon and you have to get up, turn on the light, write it down, get your iPhone, get your glasses on. Do you even have to wear glasses? You stayed so healthy into this point in your career. Like, how does it work? Do you take a chance of going to sleep on an idea and forgetting it the next morning? Like, how does it work when you have so many ideas? Well, I'll tell you a humorous part of all that. In my whole uh, adult life, in my working life, I, I, wait, I do wake up all night long. And, and those ideas do come to me. They're in your brain when I wake up in the middle of the night. And I used to send them to my employees when I was in engineering business. But then they got to make it so much fun of me by sending them in at 1 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever. I learned to, to email them to myself. Uh, at that time, and then about seven o'clock next morning, I could sit on the them, and they didn't make quite as much fun at me. But uh, you know, our good friend Skip knows. So you know, he asked me one time. I don't remember if we were doing an interview or what, but he said, "Where do you get all those ideas from?" I said, "They just come to me in the night, Skip." But they, but that's not totally true. They come to you when you're out hunting. You see a need. You see a void. You know, and you know too often. You know, the correct idea was in front of your face all along. You couldn't see it. I don't know why you couldn't see it, but, you know, a lot of the things we come up with, we should have been able to think of that last year, year before, five years ago, 10 years ago. So, you know, that's some deficiency in our thought process. It always makes me mad when that happens. But uh, it's kind of a, a little bit of everything type procedure. Well, I didn't answer your question. Yeah, I try to document it some way when I wake up in the night. If I don't want to get up the next morning, I say, I had a heck of an idea last night, but I don't remember what it was. Four years ago, five years ago, we're all fired up. The King Mallard comes out, new body style, new charging, um, you know, the whole docking system, the, the, the wings, the material, the quietness, the longevity of it, the toughness. And then all of a sudden, does another idea comes into your mind, Terry Demon, or how does it come into fruition that, and I, and I, I'll stand on a soapbox until I'm blue in the face and say that this new Mojo Mallard's the best thing to come out of Mojo ever in my tenure with the company, which is a long time. We're going on over 12 years together now. Um, I love all the product. Don't get me wrong, but this, there's something about this new Mojo Mallard, the metal wings, the quietness, the wing beats, the speed, the rotation. It's still easy to charge, a lot easier than the original. Why does this come back into fruition after you spent so much time and energy and investment, sweat, equity, elbow grease on the King Mallard to better your production of the spinning wing decoy? Why go back to this? Well, it fits right into my statement of a few minutes ago where many things you see was right there in front of your eyes the whole time. Now, you, we made the Mojo Mallard. That was the you know product that brought us to the death, so to speak. Uh, and it was the most popular product of that type on the market for many, many years. But, you know, pretty soon the technology, you know, advanced past it. 
and I had that idea about developing that Elite Series, the key you talk about, where we put the motor and all the other stuff in a little working houses, and we just wrapped a flexible body around it. And that's a good design. But people kept asking, telling, commenting, and saying, why don't you bring back the Mojo Mallard? And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought because, you know, our progress was the Leaf Series, the King, as you mentioned there. And then one day, uh, a couple of years ago, I said, why don't we just take the Mojo Mallard? They want it. Why don't we sell it to them? And let's put modern technology to the, all the rugged dur durability of that, you know, give it the high detail body, uh, uh, you know, all the other technologies available today, you know, more, uh, more advanced remote control system, better batteries, uh, a better wiring system, all that type of stuff. So it was an idea that was right in front of our face and we couldn't see it. Okay. So how does it work in your entrepreneurial mind now? I'm looking at some notes of what I did in, in just the state of Wyoming with the King Mallard. How does it work in your entrepreneurial mind now of the consumer? Like, do you say that this is the one you need? Do you add this because Mojo guys are fanatics? Mojo girls are fanatics. They collect them. Like, how does that work in your entrepreneurial mind that you bring this back? You say it's better than ever. Are you taking a chance of cutting the sales of, of the elite series of, do you need anything else? I guess is the simple question. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a great question, too, because we do have to think our way through that, because even though we have to upgrade our product line continuously, you know, you're not advancing your company by a whole lot by just replacing one decoy with another one. If they were going to buy, you know, the King, and now they're not going to buy the King, they're going to buy the, uh, the, the Mojo Mallard, then what did you do other than make a better product? Now, that's a worthy cause, but, you know, you didn't really – make your company bigger and better or more profitable or anything by doing that. So yeah, you have to, you have to give that a lot of thought, but I don't think it will, it certainly won't kill the elite series by any means because it has all those different size, different types. It's so much easier to make so many different uh, species in that because the only thing that's different is we have a small, a medium and a large, but past that, the only thing is different is that flexible body that we wrap it around it. And I've had people, you know, I, I appreciate what you just said about the Mojo Mallard. And I've had a lot of other people uh, uh, say that, you know, our good buddy, Randy Russell, he called me up once a month, tell me that's the best decoy he's ever owned. And, uh, uh, but we have a lot of people say, no, I'm going to stay with the King. I like it. And I have one outfitter that we hunt with up in Canada a lot. And he likes that uh, mini mile Drake, and he likes the four double A batteries because he said, you know, we hunt morning and afternoon. We don't get into late at night, leave the next morning. I got time charge batteries, you know, so I can put four double A's in there. I don't care case of them around in my trailer, put four double A's in there. He, he claims he's hunting a week on four double A batteries, but then they don't have to hunt as many hours every day. <laughs> they get a limited as you and I do down here in the state. So it, it's something that has to be thought about. And you don't always get it right, but we do think about it. But I think the elites in this particular example, I think the elite series will go on just fine because we're only making that, that one mojo mile. Has the response by retail been the same as by the end consumer? Obviously, you get testimonials back from the end consumer, but is the response at, at retail, which is a huge part of mojo, you guys aren't a direct company correct me if I'm wrong on that, but you guys are dealer support, right? Like you, you have an amazing line of dealers. You don't sell directly from mojooutdoors.com, do you? We do, but we don't sell a lot. We're not trying to sell. We're not trying to compete with the retailers. 
but we get a lot of requests for that. So we put them on our website. They can buy. We charge full MSRP. We don't discount them. We don't have sales. We don't have that type of stuff because we don't want to compete with our retailers. So, yes, it's retailer, but, you know, last year, you know, that, that product actually came out last year, but it really wasn't a last year product. What we did was once we got it developed, we uh, manufactured a few hundred, like 500, I think. We didn't have them until uh, middle of December, so much of the north was already closed. And we just, we're starting to do that on all of our real new products because I want to get some of them out there the year before if it's got any kind of bug in it or whatever. Let's find out, you know, the first year so we can get it straightened out. We didn't find out anything, but we sold out all the ones we made. And uh, we have plenty of them in stock now, but we, at the time we didn't have them in stock because they sold much faster than I thought they were going to. So you're saying that in your warehouse right now, you have good inventory of the Mojo Mallard. Retailers are getting, they've been stocked in inventory. How does it work in, in the waterfowl business as far as uh, obviously waterfowl seasonal, okay? You do have a worldwide customer base because of guys like Ramsey Russell and Argentina and New Zealand and, and Africa and all these different countries that that have uh, mojos in them, Peru, Chile. I mean, you can go on and on. Does this time of year like dictate a hundred percent like what Mojo is doing as a company? Like starting right now in September, Terry Demon, people are really looking to buy Mojos, or did they start it a month ago? How do you know how much inventory to carry on such a a niche business of duck hunting? Is it going to be a good fall? Is it going to be a good duck count? Is it going to be a good weather year, a good migration? Do you stay up at night worrying about this? I know you've been in the game a long time, but what is it dependent on? Right now in this time of the year, you say you have a full warehouse, but your job is to make sure that warehouse isn't full come January 1st when duck season starts to come to an end. Does that question make sense? Like, Does it keep you up at night with, with a business that can be so temperamental? Well, A, it makes a lot of sense, and B, no, I don't step at night worried about anything. You know, I go to sleep. I may not sleep too long, but I go to sleep. But here's what we do. It's, very, it's not complicated. Uh, it's hard to do. It's a lot of data. You know, we track sales of every skew for years, you know, just keep on, keep on. So we can see the trend of what's going on in that particular skew. Uh, and from that, we make a uh, estimate of what we think every skew will sell. And then uh, we, we have meetings with the buyers from, from the stores, from the big box chains, you know, even from the great big box chains, the Amazons and the Walmarts and those kind of people, you know, and, and they have their input into what's going to happen this year. And from that, we look into the crystal ball and tell you what we think that's going to sell that year. But it really doesn't vary as much year by year as probably people would think probably that I thought, you know, going into it because it's a sport of passion. And uh, you can say that the uh, duck numbers, they're reporting them right now, duck numbers down, say if you want to use a general figure, say 10% from last year. Well, I doubt their estimates within 10% of being accurate to begin with, you know, the way they do it. I don't know how you ever could over that large piece of property. Uh, But, you know, most duck hunters understand that it's got more to do with what your weather is and those type of factors, whether the ducks actually come to your area and stay there for long enough, that it has to do with what the total population of ducks are. So that doesn't affect our decision-making 
as to how much of each product we're going to manufacture every year as one might would think it would. And we do, we do pretty good. We don't do perfect, but we do pretty good. You know, we'll sell out of some things and we'll get stuck, you know, with some things over, but you know, year after year after year, it kind of goes on on a slow growth basis. All right. I want to continue this topic, but first we need to hit up a few of our sponsors and then we'll jump right back into all things Mojo Outdoors, waterfowl hunting, and Mr. Terry Denman after the break. The Foul Life. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I'm here to tell you right now. What I say is what I say. Potatoes and... No, I didn't say that at all. People are going to think I'm an idiot. The Foul Life with Chad Belding will continue after this word from our partners. Because they make us do it in order to still be partners. (laughs) So, here it is. Vision. I just had a lens retraction surgery last year it's pretty much like cataracts that you're going to get in your 60s 70s everybody's going to get it once you get it your vision is there it's never changing artificial lenses i had it at 40s and i'm telling you with what i do with duck hunting and scouting and watching my daughter grow up i'm just so thankful that i'm back to 2015 in my right eye and 2020 in my left eye thanks to dr matt mills who you've all heard on our podcast but i want to protect my eyes and that's exactly where one of our badass partners comes in Oakley, Oakley eyewear, the Oakley culture, the Oakley lifestyle. Protect your vision when you're shooting, when you're fishing. Nothing worse than getting a hook in the eye with somebody casting on the same boat. You just can't take it for granted. The damage the sun can cause, the rays, the UV, just keeping the dust and the dirt out of your eyes, just everything during a hunt, pit blind, boat blind, it doesn't matter, sun up. They make different lenses for different skies. They're sold all over the world and they support the military and the blue line and conservation and hunting and fishing in the outdoors and living off the land. And we never hunt without our Oakleys. Everybody's like, why you always got your sunglasses on? Shouldn't be wearing sunglasses. You probably shouldn't in turkey hunting. I don't wear them in turkey hunting because of the vision of a turkey and the reflection. But when I'm shooting trap range or the sporting clays or the skeet or the five stand, or I'm in a duck hunt or a goose hunt, I have my Oakleys with me at all time. I put them in my banded backpack. I have them in an Oakley hard case. I keep them protected. The prism lenses everything that goes in to the technology behind the Oakley brand and the frames, the function of them, all of the different lenses that you can get, like I mentioned, and the way they protect our eyes. The prism lens technology is second to none. You got to get a pair of Oakleys. I know there's a lot of choices out there when you want to protect your eyes, but remember, please support the brands that support this lifestyle. Oakley, the official eyewear of the Foul Life TV, the Foul Life podcast, and everything we do here at the provider and where the pavement ends. Thank you so much for supporting. Oakley. We travel a lot. We're up and down America's highways, byways, thoroughways, cornfields, dirt roads, back roads, country roads. Love seeing that dust in our rear view. Love looking over and seeing the sun set, the sun rise. Mallard ducks pitching in to a pond in Kansas, a coyote howling in Wyoming, an antelope standing on the side of the road in Nevada. We get to do this all through Ford trucks. Corning Ford, Paul, Francis, the entire crew, the customer service, the service department, the selection, the dedication to excellence and quality, the number one Ford Super Duty dealer in the West United States five years in a row. They're in the top 10 in the country and they're in a little tiny town, Corning, California. 5,000 people deep maybe, but the construction, the farming, the ranching, the almonds, the walnuts, the olives, the duck hunting, the fishing, the deer hunting and turkey hunting, predator hunting, you name it. Corning Ford is part of it. They support our lifestyle, their pricing. They refuse to mark them up. Give them a try. They'll deliver your truck 
anywhere in the country. They've delivered them to Alaska, Florida, so many to Nevada, so many to Northern California, all over Arizona and Colorado. They've delivered three to Tennessee. They delivered one to Minnesota to our friend Andrew at Wild Acre Kennels. It's Corning Ford. They support the outdoors, and there's nothing better than a Ford truck. These 2023 Ford Super Duties F-250s, F-350s, the long bed, the short bed, the tremor package. Watch your speed. Set that cruise control because sometimes you'll look down and be like, I'm not going that fast. Something's got to be broken. And you're pulling a trailer, and you got a leer topper on the back of it. The bed of your truck is full. They're meant for hauling. They're meant for towing. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Paul. There's nowhere better in the country to buy your next Ford vehicle or Ford Super Duty truck than Corning Ford. Thank you all for supporting them. The Foul Life is back, and it's made possible by Avery Outdoors, Gator Coolers, and Safari Club International. So let's finish the flock and rejoin Chad Belding and Terry Denman as they're leaving no feather unturned. All right, I want to keep talking about product because... It's very interesting to me about the success that this product line has brought to so many duck hunters. There's been a lot of backlash over Mojo product in this country, over this type of decoy, I should say. Where do you stand on it, Terry, politically or, I guess, lawfully, ethically? You go to Canada early. You go to Canada in October, but that's not as early as you can go. You can go September First, September 3rd, I think, is somewhere around Alberta, Saskatchewan's opening date. I might be off a little bit. Politically, the political side of Terry Demi, which you have been involved in politics in your Louisiana livelihood. Um, you've been on the board of the Department of Wildlife or the Department of Natural Resources. You've done it all. Is it okay to go up in September 5th in Alberta or Saskatchewan and put four mojos in a, in a pea field and hammer on those brown ducks when there's no color and you can't tell the sex apart? Yes or no? Uh, yes, it's okay to do that if that's what you want to do. Because, uh, you know, hunting really doesn't make a very big difference in the duck population dynamics. I have a letter in our file from back in the days that you were referring to where uh, our product was so controversial. Uh, it wasn't just our product, it was anybody making those decoys, but because of the patent issues, there wasn't hardly anybody else making them back in those days. But I have a, I have a letter from the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife said we don't have a problem with spinning wing decoys because hunting doesn't affect the uh, uh, duck population dynamics. And so I, I, we don't go up there and hunt early. Uh, I have done it. I have been there on opening day in Alberta, but we don't typically do that simply because we like to shoot mallard, uh, greenhead mallards, just like you do. And you can't tell them when you're up there. And, you know, we do get some criticism for shooting hens, but as you know, at that time of year, if it's happening very fast, you can't pick out the drakes. You know, there's no color to pick it out with. But but the people who want to do that, I think that's fine. I think it's wonderful. Uh, if that's what they want to do, I don't think it's having enough effect upon the uh, duck population to make any difference. So I think that gets down to you want to shoot brown ducks or you want to wait for the green heads. So in a nutshell, Terry Demon is telling me that if you go up to Alberta and Saskatchewan in September season and you hunt legally, we're not going to put a dent or we're, we're going to put a dent in the population ducks. Obviously, we're taking some out of the ecosystem, but it's not going to dictate the overall health of that population. Is that what you're saying? That's what they're saying. That's what they're and saying. I believe it. That's what they're saying. And I believe it. All these wild creatures, birds, especially birds squirrels, rabbits, mice, stuff like that. You know, they die off in large numbers anyway. And when the when conditions are good, they reproduce. 
very fast. And so it, it, the amount of ducks you have has got more to do with the environment uh, than it does with, with anything else. You know, it's hard for, for a person to say, well, I went up there and I killed X on these ducks and it didn't make any difference. That's a, kind of a hard concept to track. But it, basically, overall, that's true. It, it's true because uh, many of them are going to die anyway. So it probably makes a little bit of difference, but it don't make enough difference according to the biologists. Now, I'm not capable of arriving at this conclusion on my own. I'm getting this from biologists. You know, It's not going to affect the, the overall dynamics of how many birds you have next year. What's going to affect that is whether they got water on the breeding grounds or not. That's that, When they got water on the breeding ground, they make a lot of ducks. When they don't have water on the breeding ground, they don't make nearly as many. Here's a controversial question for you, Mr. Terry Dimmon. You live in Louisiana, which is almost as far south as you can get in any flyway in the country. You're hunting very educated ducks on land that you invested in financially, elbow grease, sweat equity wise. You love duck hunting and you probably love to see mallard ducks and other species of puddle ducks and maybe divers thrive on your land. Would you rather, and this is probably have to take the business side or the money making side of Terry Demon out of this. Would you rather them not be able to use mojos in the Northern States to where they weren't as educated or do they even get educated because of mojos? It's a two-sided question. Would you rather be in Louisiana hunting ducks in December and January and have a better, would you consider it a better chance if they were not using mojo so much in the northern provinces of Canada, the grass hole prairie land? What is your, is, that's a hard question to ask a businessman because you want revenue. I get it. You want the value of your company to be there, but does anything give in your psyche when it comes to the pothole region, the northern provinces of Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario? Would you rather them not use them up there so the ducks were a little bit easier for you come December, January, that far south? Well, if that was a question that was posed to whomever and we got to vote on it, I would certainly not vote for them not to be able to use them up there. And that's not really a business decision. That's a fair, not fair. I mean, what would be fair about you don't use them and let me get down here where where I can use them? Because these ducks were hard to kill long before we had mojos because they've seen everything else too. They've seen calls and decoys and duck blinds and dogs and there's nothing they haven't seen. Now, true enough, it's easier up there. If they had the population up there that we have down here, and I'm talking about Canada now, certainly not the Northern States, you know. Uh, if they had the population up there, then they probably could hurt the duck, could hurt the duck population if they had enough people hunting, but they don't have. So, you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, we, we are accustomed to hunting hard ducks down here. So, you know, you'll get those days where they're easier and, you know, you'll do better on those days. But I, I think it's fine just like it is. And, and I think that would be true if I couldn't sell a mojo in Canada. I'd have the same exact uh, thought process. Makes total sense. Let me ask you this about the product. You're in cold weather country. Let's say you're in late October or mid-October, Alberta. You'll be up there with Riceland, Mr. Rob. How do you take care of your mojos, Terry? You know, like I'm a decoy nut. I'm a call nut. I'm a gear nut. All of us are pretty much duck hunters are crazy when it comes to our arsenal, right? Like you got to, you're hosting a show. You got to do B-roll. You got to do cutaways. You got to do lunch. You got to 
set up. You got a breakdown. You got you got a lot going on. You got your phone going off. You got business back in Louisiana and the states. You got Cabela's calling. You got Bass Pro calling. You got Max Prairie Wings calling. You Chuck Locks up your ass. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on, right? You got a team of guys like it. But if you're on your own. How do you take care of these? You don't want to lose a part. You don't want to wake up the next day and forget that you charge it. Do you have to charge them every day? How do you personally maintain and take care of your mojos? And let's just stick with the mojo mallard for ease. But educate me because I get weirded out. Like it's a lot to keep up with when you got so much gear and blinds and dogs and decoys and boats and backpacks and blind bags and ammo and guns and the safety and all of it, right? Like how, how do you maintain that at this point in your hunting career? I know you have a team, but what's the easiest way to go about it? Well, actually, you know, when we were in Alberta last year, it was nasty wet weather, you know, stuff like that. And we did take care of, I did take care of being two or three people, being Chuck Martin, you know, a couple of guys, because I don't have my cameraman do that stuff. I tell you, film, I'll take care of the rest of that stuff. And they don't take a lot of attention, but they do require some attention that they don't often get. You know, well, most people don't take the wings off when they transport them. So they throw them in the back of the truck or wherever they haul them on the four-wheeler or whatever they haul them on, you know, bend the wing, bend the motor shaft, you know, something like that. Uh, and where if they just take the wings off and stick them in whatever, you know, that didn't happen to them. Uh, moisture, uh, you know, we do it all that we can do with, with the amount of money that we have. And that, what that means is, you know, people are not going to pay $500 for one of these things. So you take what they're going to pay for them and the amount of money that we get out of what you pay for one uh, retail, uh, you know, you can only do so much. But moisture is pretty much an enemy. Uh, to anything that's got a battery in it. And so if you would kind of give them an opportunity to dry out between hunts, that goes a long way. You can take, uh, I, I do this, I take uh, a light oil, three-in-one oil type oil, something like that, just drop it on the each motor, each uh, motor shaft on each end so it can kind of lubricate that part to where the shaft comes out of the motor. And then, you know, we make a lot of decoys that have used uh, four AA batteries. You know, and that's a Ford Chevrolet type of deal. Some people, you know, want to have that. Some people want to have the rechargeable batteries. So we, we do both of them. But uh, as you know, uh, you know, you take a battery like that and you've got it out in abortion and everything, it's going to develop a little bit of corrosion. What they do is develop a little fine uh, a film of corrosion that will actually keep it from working. And you can take your thumbs and twist, turn those batteries and have the thing back working again. In fact, uh, Almost all the ones we get back, that's all that's wrong with them. They got a little film of corrosion between the battery and the terminal. So very simple things like that. And there's another thought that people that use this product ought to latch on to. And, uh, you know, we all know that warm air holds more moisture than cold air. And I'm not going to get technical, Chad, so I see you kind of grimace. <laughs> I'm not get technical on that. But warm air holds more moisture than uh, cool air does. And when these things are running, almost everything inside a motor, a battery, a switch, a wire, a remote control, a PC board, and stuff, or heat generators. So the inside of that decoy is a lot warmer than the out in the ambient air on the outside in most cases. So it gets more moisture on the inside. And when you turn it off, that air starts cooling. And when air starts cooling, the relative humidity goes up and it condenses air. It's your mirror in your bathroom is all it is. It's the dew on the grass or something like that. And you ought to give out a chance to dry out. And if you did, you know, we have very little trouble with this. So 
kind of like a shotgun. Take it out of the case, let it dry out, wipe it down, maybe a little oil, let it air dry, get a towel on it. Don't keep them stored in the Mojo backpack all night. Take them out and let them dry, let them air out, and let. And do you put them on a charger every night, just to be sure? Yes. Yeah, I put them on charger every night on most any kind of battery. And uh, of course, we're mostly dealing with uh, seal lead acid batteries, lithium ion batteries, and uh, double A's. Uh, you know, most any kind of battery, it's best not to rechargeable. It's best not to store them uncharged. So I, that's the first thing we do when we come in is put those rechargeable batteries on the on the charger. Okay, let's get down to the performance part and the how to use them. Obviously, we've talked about the remote and how important a remote is if you're on a combo hunt. Even when it's just a duck hunt, you might want to turn it off and on. You do have an intermittent switch on the mojos that you can have, you know, it's not a continuous, you know, wing beat the entire time of the spinning wing. How about a low ceiling, but snowing, which Alberta can have that in North Dakota. A lot of states up north have this. Wisconsin, I was in it last year. Low ceiling, snowing. Not a blizzard, not a whiteout, but you got that crystallization. You know how you start to see those like almost fireflies in your eyes when you're watching snowfall. You got that crystallization, those little diamonds falling out of the air. And then you got the mojo. You're, you, you are very educated in a duck's eyesight and vision, Mr. Terry Demon. Should I use a mojo on those kind of days? And I know the easy answer is we'll see what they're doing and then judge it then. But did mojos perform when it's snowing like that? Because ducks have that sense of urgency to get down and feed um, they might have fed hard before the snowstorm when the barometric pressure started to drop but actually hunting in a snowstorm do mojos perform uh yes they do mojos uh, the spinning wing concept is, uh, effectiveness it is going to vary with the sky conditions but we've killed a i don't know how many we kill we've killed a lot of ducks uh in alberta and places like that in heavy snowstorms now, you might need to use more or less of them. The ducks has got to tell you that. But, you know, you mentioned Rob Little's ball, go race gun out there. We've been up with him for many years. You know, his standard deal is put four of them out there, and he don't ever change that. And he hunts in the bright sun and in the heavy snow. So they will work, but I'll say this. They can't attract from as far a distance in a heavy snowstorm as they could in a bluebird day. Really? they? I love hunting in snow. And man, I've seen some amazing, and I have, like, I, obviously I'm playing devil's advocate here and asking questions. I've seen the response of mallard ducks in a snowstorm over a mojo. Is the easy answer, what's the easy answer to this question, Terry Demon? Do you ever try to hunt a dry field for mallard ducks? I guess you could say puddle ducks. It's very odd to get a teal, sometimes a widgeon. I've killed a lot of widgeon in Oklahoma in the, in the dry wheat fields. Sometimes sprig, not a lot. Sometimes gadwall or gray ducks, as you call them down there in yonder land of Louisiana, sometimes you'll see a gadwall dry feeding, but it's mainly mallards, to be fair. Would you ever hunt a dry field without mojos? I wouldn't want to. If I didn't have one, if I didn't have one, I might would. But no, they're more effective in a dry field than they are over the water. I don't know why, but they are. It may be because uh, ducks gang up to feed more in a dry field than they do in the water. You take the typical water type places where we've hunted, you know, uh, even in one big pond, you know, some of them want to go to one side, some of them want to go to the other. But in a, in a dry field, for whatever reason, if you get them started coming to, you know, you got to be pretty close to the X. But if you get anywhere around the X, you get them started coming, they all tend to want to come to the same place. So, 
I wouldn't want to go out there without – the only reason I wouldn't go is I, I didn't have one or they wouldn't let me use it. Other than that, I, I would have one in the drive field. A lot of the things you've heard about, and you've even said it, Terry, is – Let's take Canada, for example, Alberta, where you hunt. Those fields are gigantic. How many acres can a field be up there so our listening audience has an idea? How big can a field be when you're hunting in Canada? Well, it can be several miles long, several miles in both directions. They're huge, they're huge fields. And I don't know how many. Uh, that'd be 640 acres. They'd be, they could be two or 3,000 acres. Exactly. These mojos were designed to get the ducks' attention from a long ways away. You, you're you not really hunted a concentrated area when you're in a pea field in Oklahoma. But when you get up in Canada, you're really not hunting a concentrated effort when or a field when you get up there in the peas. I meant peanuts in Oklahoma. But when you're in the peas of Canada – you got to get them close to you. You could be off the X in the same field they were in, but those fields are so big. My question though is I don't turn them off when they get close either. Do you stop your spinning wing? Do you turn a couple of them off? If you have more than one or two of them out there, do you cut it down from five to two? How do you, when it's that time of the year, which we're in right now of going to Canada, or do you let the ducks finish over the top of them? Why all of them are still on that time of year. Yeah, you know, we never turn them off unless you got geese. Geese is the only thing that makes us turn them off. And, uh, you know, actually, I don't run the intermittent button. But then I've talked to a lot of hunters that their hunting situation tells them that they do better running the intermittent. But we just crank them up and let them go. And uh, uh, if see geese coming, we'll turn them off. If, we don't, if we're not hunting in an area, if I'm not hunting in an area that has geese, I don't use a remote control. Well, I may have one, but I'm not using it during the hunt. I may have one to turn it on, you know, at shooting light or something like that, turn it off when the, when the hunt's over with. But I've found the need to do that. Now, a lot of people say, well, when they get accustomed to them, you know, they, they don't want to finish on top of them. And, but our answer to that is if they don't want to finish within 30 yards of them, put it 30 yards outside the killing hole. And uh, because – as you already mentioned, the highest and best use of this device is and always has been long-range attraction. So if you don't use it, you give up your long-range attraction. A duck, uh, a duck can see motion, moving things about three and a half times better than they can see steel things. Uh, it is said. I don't know who determined that, but it's a pretty common belief. But they can see spinning wing, the spinning wing concept much, much further than that. They can see it for four, five, six miles. And you don't want to give up those ducks that wasn't ever going to see your spread. They were going somewhere else. But then they saw that stroke, that flash, and made them think that there was other ducks there. And oftentimes, not always, oftentimes they'll peel off, come over and check it out. So why would a person want to give that up? It just it makes no sense to me. Who calls the shot when you're in Canada, Terry? You or Rob? Rob. Okay. Now we we have to coach Rob a little bit because <laughs> Takes it you, of TV. you may know that you may know the answer to this better than I do, and I've I've seen it for years. You've seen it for years. When you're filming, some way you got to call the shot about a second or two quicker than you were if you were just hunting. And so we have to school him a little bit in that. But uh, he's gonna call it. So you just made a remark about those, how far a duck can see it from. You get a group of mallards over you and they're doing it, right? The, a lot of times in mojos and dry fields, especially in Canada, but even in Oklahoma in December, January, you're talking 30 of them in the decoys in the first pass, not even thinking about circling. But as a duck hunter, your instincts start to, you know, they mature a little bit in your career. You see another group out there. 
How do you like to, it done? Do you like to get into them right away or do you like to let that first group kind of settle or they get back up and they pass and then that next group's coming in and they join together? It's just so magical, like what you've built the brand on Mojo Magic um, to see how, how they get over there. Or is it better not to educate that big of a group and kill those first ones and then maybe let that second group go by? I'm talking about the mentality of the hunt leader, Terry Demon, the guy that's going to call the shot, the girl that's going to call the shot. How do you do that when you got uh, the potential of decoying every duck in the area in that type of situation? Well, it's hard sometimes to know what to do, but if you've got a flock of 40 or 50, which is not unusual up there, you know, and then uh, typically speaking, if they're not overhunted up there, you know, they'll just come on in. But if they are overhunted up there, they're wild creatures, you know, they know how to take care of themselves. Uh, you know, if three or four of them is going to land and the rest of them going to circle, then I would let them circle. But that's a chancy proposition because uh, as those are circling and those is uh, landing, getting scared, figuring out something's wrong, getting up and fly off, you know, it kind of disrupts the pattern. So you don't know if you're going to get that bigger bunch to come in behind it or not. But if I'm hunting, you know, I'm hunting for the enjoyment of it. That's why I go hunting. And uh, it, it's more enjoyable to me to get the whole group to land, and that's what I'm going to try to do. But sometimes you lose your you lose your bigger part because you didn't shoot the few that came on in. In your opinion, Terry Demon is the inventor of this. You weren't the inventor. I don't want to misconceive everybody, but you you have developed Mojo into what it's become with the help of your team. Guys like the late Mr. Mike Morgan, rest in peace, Mr. Mike, Chuck Smart, many other people. Does it matter how high they are or how low they are? Should you mix them up? Is depth perception really play a key in this spinning wing? Are you more comfortable as a duck hunter because you think you're doing something unorthodox of putting a couple lower to the ground? You might even take a mojo floater out and put it on the ground and let it spin. Um, if even when you're not in a water type situation, you have one at mid range, you have a higher one. Does it matter in your opinion? Yes, it does. And, and people don't like my answer. You already know what it's going to be. People don't like the answer, but, you know, I've seen plenty of times when we put the big mojos up on that 12-foot extension pole, and they love it, and they'll, and they'll come in. And then I've seen times when they don't like it like that. And, you know, you can kind of learn kind of what those type, different times might be, but you can't exactly learn. I can't exactly learn what they actually are, but uh, – uh, uh, it, it's just different. You just got to let the ducks tell you, you know, what they want. You know, the longer you hunt, the more you hunt, the more experienced you become, uh, the, the better your first guess is at the it, right before first light. You know, when you're setting up, the more you know you're going to make a better guess of getting it right. But you're not always going to get it right. And, and the, the uh, weakness too many hunters have is they're not willing to get out of the blind and change things. And, of course, you've hunted with us. You know that's not true. We aggravated too many outfitters because we just jump out of the blind, go chasing everything. And, uh, <laughs> but you gotta, gotta let them tell you what you do. But I've seen days the high pole will kill them for you. And I've seen days when it wouldn't. And if it don't, change it. And it's, it's got, it's got a lot to do with sky conditions. On a bluebird day, nothing to be a spinning wing decoy on a bluebird day. You know, you watch old, you get to look at old art of waterfowl, you know, old pictures. You know, they always wanted to pick you out there with acid, your beard, you know, all that type stuff, you know, snowing on you and stuff like that. And that was true back then. But today, you know, with the spinning wing concept, it's that bluebird day that follows that front that's causing that snow. That's when uh, uh, spinning wing decoys uh, are at their best. Yeah, and I just think that ducks act their best, too, when they can – with that shadows, the shine – 
There's nothing like a bluebird day. I, I go to California all the time. They're like, oh, man, we need a low ceiling. And that might be true in the rice out there. And you want to kill some snow geese that are flying over. And But, man, there's something about sunshine that makes puddle ducks absolutely go crazy. Absolutely. And they act like ducks. So what's next, Terry? Where are you headed? I know you got teal coming up at El Campo. You're going back up to Rob's place in Alberta, Canada. Why – don't you ever mix it up? Do you develop a love affair, a bromance? Let me just ask you it this way. You wouldn't go hunt with another outfitter in Alberta because you want to make sure that that you're giving your all to Rob because of what he's invested in the Mojo brand and bringing you up there? Is that how it goes? Yeah, it's a loyalty issue. I, I happen to be, by design, I guess, I don't take that much time, a real loyal person. And Rob's always been really, really good to us. He's, you know, he's, well, took us on a lot of hunts. He works hard when we go up there. And so I'm just not going to go and promote uh, uh, some of his competitors because, you know, one of the things that we uh, offer to outfitters, now we didn't, we didn't design this. It just worked out that way. Is, uh, you know, we can bring a lot of hunters to him, you know, at least get them a lot of telephone calls about what's going on. So if I hunt with another outfitter in close proximity to Steve Biggers in El Campo, Texas, and I get a lot of advice, or, or somebody in Alberta, and I get a lot of advice, uh, then I consider that somewhat disloyal. As long as Rob's doing everything he can do for us, why would I be disloyal to him? This year I am going to Saskatchewan and uh, hunt with a, a new bunch up there that I've never hunted with before. You know, one thing COVID did that hurt us is when we couldn't go south of the equator, you couldn't go to Argentina, you couldn't go to Africa, you know, those type places like that, It two things happened. That left a void for us that we needed additional new hunts in, but it also filled up these outcomes and made it hard to get hunts. So, you know, we're having to find us some new hunts to go on. So, and one of them I'm going on this year, well, two of them. Well, you, you was involved in one of them. One of them I'm going on is the Saskatchewan. The other ones is your buddies at uh, Wabraska up in uh, on the Wyoming, Nebraska. Right? Randy Russell and I are going uh, there uh, sometime in December, before Christmas in December, you know, so. I wish you were going to be there. I'm going to look at the dates again. Ramsey Russell has been there before. He was there before me. I remember listening to Ramsey's podcast he did with J.J. Randolph, the owner, and his his uh, stepdad, Mike. You're going to love it. Like You've been everywhere. You've seen God's country everywhere, but it's just as pretty a country. to You would never imagine waterfowl hunting, right? You'd, you're going to think more antelope and mule deer and you're going to be like you're going to be like let's go predator hunting as soon as this hunts over this morning i promise you like it's it's that type of country along the platte river and then michael and and jj i'm talking just amazing human beings so i'm glad you're going i'll look at the dates and hopefully i can fly in there and, and crash you and ramsey's uh but then if me and ramsey are both there then whose podcast are you going to do <laughs> uh, well you know you, when you talk with ramsey you listen that's what your job is to listen. <laughs> and I hope he's listening to this podcast. And you know? so he called me yesterday and he was on the phone about 45 minutes. I don't think I said nine words. <laughs> but he is, he is smart. He's intelligent. He's articulate. You know? He's very intelligent. It's Duck Season Somewhere, correct? Is that the name of his company? Well, it's get, it, his name of his company is getducks.com. But his tagline is this duck season somewhere, you know. I'm glad you reminded me. Getducks.com. Yeah, that's I absolutely love that area of Wyoming, right on the Nebraska border. It's it's as cool as it gets. So that'll be cool. You got where 
Saskatchewan, same time as Alberta. Are you just going to jump the border after you're done with Rob? No, I'm going to go to Saskatchewan first. And when I leave that, I got I was lucky enough to get into range where it ends on the same day I was supposed to be in, uh, over with, out in Alberta with Rob. So I'm just going to leave there and go to Rob's. I'm going to go to that Elk Point, which is his base operation. That's where we've always been going. But he has a, a, a new operation that he's been trying to get us to go through for several years, and it's down below uh, Calgary in southern Alberta. So we're going to have two and a half days uh, at Elk Point. Then we're going to go down below Calgary and uh, hunt two and a half days, and then we're going to fly to Calgary coming home. Who, who are you going to Canada with? Steve. I'm a buddy, Steve McCain from Mexico. He's going to go with us. Uh, Chuck's going to go. And uh, my, my uh, Stoker Benelli guy is going to go to – no, he's going to Mexico with me. He's not going to Canada with me. And right now, I don't have anybody else. I need to put together a couple more guns if you want to go. All right. I'll, what dates are there? Well, we'll talk off camera. But set, text me the dates. I'll do it. I'm going to be up there in October. You're in October, right? Um, the, the last uh, last week of October, I'll be in Saskatchewan. And then I'm starting on November 1st, I'll be in Alberta. Oh, you're up there later than me. All right. Well – well, I'm going to look at the Wyoming dates. Text those to me, please. I will do that. I will do that. And, you know, we go late for a couple of different reasons. Uh, number one, the birds are really colored up. And number two, if you ever see them when they're getting ready to migrate, uh, I was up there uh, one year and they were getting ready to migrate and they were in groups of like, it must have been four or 500. It was the darndest thing I've ever seen. When you shot the front end of the group, you couldn't only see the back end of the group. <laughs> It was amazing. We need to go up there together next year. Put me down on your Canada list for Rob's next year, please. Well, you have a standard invitation. Why don't you just send a message? I'm going to try to send a message, but I got to know your dates. You set your dates. Okay. Uh, I will send you the dates. I'll send you the dates. I'd like to go, I'd like to go hunting with you. Yeah, I love hunting with you. I really do. Um, the episode you liked that we did with Biggers last year, that was pretty cool, huh? It was great. It really was great, yeah. Y'all do a lot of different things when y'all film, Chad. You know, you bring a lot of interesting things into the show that some of us don't do. Some of us get too hung up on hunting, and that's been a, a big weakness of mine throughout my TV career, which is over 20 years now, and uh, is that I've always been a hunter, you know. And so I just get into hunting, and I forget me making TV, you know. <laughs> yeah, but there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with that at all. Like, I – I wish I was more like that sometimes, but to each our own. I mean, I still, I absolutely love the idea of documenting it, but the hunting part of it is what, what drives me to be out there. I mean, I still love tricking them and, and, and getting them close and vocalizing with them and decoying them and spinning winging them and doing all of the stuff that you, the skill set brings. Yeah. I mean, not every TV show is going to be the same, which brings me, I sent you that deal. I'd love it this coming Monday. If you set your DVR or watch the Outdoor Channel, we're airing um, Have We Forgotten, which is our one-hour 9-11 special. I saw that. I saw that. You sent me an email on it, and I got it. I'll try to do that. I hope you like it. I, I want your opinion on it. If, uh, do you still have a DVR? I don't know. <laughs> well, if worse comes to worse, I'll send you a link. You've been in my house, you know, and wires pulling everywhere. Yeah. You know, I don't really get to watch very much TV, and I, I really don't. But watch that one, please. Please. Okay. And tell your office, please. I'll do it. I want everybody's opinion on it. But I appreciate it, Terry. Um, good luck with Steve. Please tell him and his wife hello for me. And um, that I still think the Astros are cheaters. 
And that uh, <laughs> I love arguing baseball with Steve Biggers. I appreciate you coming on, my man. I always enjoy it. Anything I can do to help you, let us know. I'll do it, Terry. Hold on one second as we get off of another awesome episode. The Foul Life Podcast brought to you today by Mojo Outdoors. Check them out at mojooutdoors.com. The new Mojo Mallard. Got a lot more information coming to you. Check out brand new episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life airing exclusively right now on the Outdoor Channel. We'll be back at you with another episode of the Foul Life Podcast soon. Lots of good guests coming up as we get into the 2023-2024 season. Hope you all are enjoying what you're listening to, watching us on YouTube, or seeing on the Foul Life TV on the Outdoor Channel, like I just mentioned. Until the next episode, I'm Chad Belding for Terry Denman of Mojo Outdoors. Thank you all very much for listening. Chad Belding and his group of misfits. It's a lonely life, dude. Filled with depression and loneliness and... Oh, God, what's the big one down there? Uh, I can't believe how much of an idiot I am. You know, uh, he was his old self on the telephone. He's a smart guy. The Foul Life with Chad Belding will continue after this word from our partners. Chad Belding! Why are we yelling? Hey, everybody, it's Chad Belding with the Foul Life Podcast. I'm so excited to announce the 2023 Benelli Migration Madness Sweepstakes. From August 1st, through October 31st, 2023, go to shoot-on.com. Again, that is shoot-on.com forward slash Benelli Migration Madness for your chance to be entered to win over $15,000 in prizes, including a collection of Benelli Super Black Eagle 3s and 3.5-inch 12-gauge, 3-inch 20-gauge, and the new 28-gauge all decked out in the new Realtree Max 7 camouflage pattern. Also included is a $4,000 online shopping spree from our friends at Banded, Greenhead Gear, and Avery Outdoors, plus three cases of ammo for each of the SBE3s from Federal Premium and a pair of Wing Shooter Alpha Shield hearing protection that are valued at over $1,400 a pair. It's the 2023 Benelli Migration Madness Sweepstakes brought to you by our friends at Banded and Federal Premium Ammunition from August 1st to October 31st. Again, go to shoot-on.com forward slash Benelli Migration Madness to be entered to win that $15,000 and prizes. I'm Chad Belding. Good luck to everybody. The Foul Life. And there you have it. Another great conversation with Terry. He, I don't know if, uh, how many hours I've sat with Terry in Louisiana, Texas, Las Vegas, Canada, North Dakota, South Dakota, and everything I've learned. Like I said, you think you know a lot because of the experiences you have, but then when you sit in the blind next to Terry, you're like, man, I really don't know anything. And that's what I love about him. He's so humble and he's so willing to share his knowledge, his experiences, his stories. And you would think that the guy has never accomplished anything with his humility. And that's how it is supposed to be. The guy is in the hunting hall of fame. He's in the outdoors hall of fame. He's accomplished everything that you can in business, the entrepreneurial spirit, conservation. He served for wildlife. He studies wildlife. He understands wildlife and he makes sure that he promotes this lifestyle and the heritage of waterfowl hunting and other hunting in the proper format. He flies the flag with all ethics and morals put first. And that's what I love about Terry. He never, ever, ever questions anything about anybody else. He does not judge. He just gives you his opinion. And I'm telling you, if you just sit and become a sponge and listen to what this man says, 
you learn so much about chasing ducks, geese, turkeys, doves, pigeons. He's the man. That was Terry Demon. I hope you all enjoyed that. I sure did. And trust me, that will not be the last time Terry Demon will be on the Foul Life Podcast. We got tons of great guests coming up, awesome topics and conversation. Thank you all so much for the downloads, the subscriptions. You know where to find us on all of the podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. I'm truly, truly appreciative. Thank you all very much for listening and supporting. Benelli's The Foul Life TV exclusively on the Outdoor Channel where you can find brand new episodes of Season 15 right now and for The Foul Life Podcast. Thank you to our partners, our sponsors, The Outdoor Channel, everybody that's tuning in on a weekly basis. A lot more to come. I hope you all are enjoying success in the field. Stay safe. Make sure you take care of you and yours, your friends and family. Thank the man upstairs. Thank Mother Nature. And know that we're blessed to be living this foul life. I'm Chad Belding. Thank you all for being here.